Hi, I'm Anne Helen Peterson, and this is Work Appropriate. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, if you've read my newsletter, if you've read my book, Out of Office, you know that I am a big proponent of flexible work. Flexible looks like a lot of different things for different people. It can mean flexibility in when you show up and leave the office, or what days of the week you work, or working wherever makes sense to you. So many organizations and employees are still very much figuring out what this looks like, particularly what management and performance reviews and communication looks like, because any seismic change in the way a lot of us arrange work is going to take time. But back in 2020, when I was first trying to figure out which organizations had already figured out so much of this, that's when I started reading about Doist. Doist is a tech company, but an interesting one. They create apps that manage workflow, and they've been fully distributed, which is business speak for they have no one office, and people can live pretty much anywhere that has internet, long before the pandemic. And they've come up with innovative and effective ways to foster work culture. That amorphous phrase we use to describe how we do things and how we talk about doing things and how people behave around each other in a remote setting, which is a quandary we get a lot. Like, how do I feel connected to my coworkers, but also how do I communicate effectively with them when we never see each other in person? Today, I got the perfect person from Doist to come on the show and answer some of your questions about how they work to get this right. My name is Chase Warrington. I'm the head of remote at Doist, which is a fully distributed company, about 100 people in 35 countries around the world. And uh, I'm from North Carolina. I've been living in Spain for the last six years. And I'm coming to you today from beautiful Lake Garda, Italy. Are you there for the company's annual retreat? Is that right? No, I've had a little bit of a Mediterranean summer, I guess, which (laughs) which sounds so bougie, Um, but uh, it's not my normal life. We held our company retreat in Tuscany, Italy uh, a couple months ago. And since then, I have returned to Italy because I guess I just couldn't get enough. We had such a good time. <laughs> it was time to come back. So yeah, I'm, I'm back now in the northern part of the country. So you had your annual retreat in Tuscany. And that's the sort of thing that when I talk to people about remote work and about fully distributed companies, they're like, wait, this is actually a possibility that like our company would pay for us to go someplace and like be together. And that maybe that place would actually be a place that I would want to go to. Can you just talk about like the philosophy behind having an annual retreat that people want to go to? Like, why is it important? And as a globally distributed company, how do you arrange for everyone to to actually show up? Oh, I love this. So this this is uh, probably my favorite subject within the entire future of work, remote work conversation is uh, oddly about like, how do we bring people back together? Yeah. And the, the very cool thing about that is I think it unlocks the ability to work asynchronously predominantly and completely distributed and to get all the benefits that we all believe we get from this style of work, but just bring each other together a couple weeks per year in a very intentional way Mm -hmm. to, as you said, a place that people actually want to go to and contrast that against 
having to go 50 weeks a year into a, a place that you have no desire to go to. <laughs> so the way we look at it is we say, you know, yeah, we're, we save a lot. People talk a lot about the office space costs that you save on with remote work. And, and that is true. We, we do save a good bit on that, but we also reinvest a large majority of that into these offsites and retreats that we plan. And we try to make them spectacular. We want people to like really enjoy them. They're focused on connection, not really a lot of collaboration necessarily or productivity. It's really building those, that social capital and making sure that the way we work day to day, the other 50 weeks out of the year is empowered by, by bringing these people together a few times per year. So you reached out to us after our episode about work friends, pointing out, and this is something that you know I've thought about a lot that because I work from home, that sometimes with work friends, you can't just grab a beer or have small talk like while waiting in the elevator. So how do you think about, and this is kind of building on this question that you just answered, but the, the value of in-person connections. To me, I think it just needs to be intentional. You have to somehow build intentional space for organic interaction between coworkers. I actually think this is something a lot of teams or leaders look at as a challenge with remote work. It's it's creating that quote unquote water cooler talk and yeah. serendipitous conversations and such, which admittedly is harder, I think, in a purely remote, hyper asynchronous environment. I get that. But there's also an opportunity baked in there to intentionally curate those spaces where people connect. And so, you know, our retreats and offsites are the in-person version of that, where we're thinking very deeply and intentionally about how do we maximize this time together and make sure that it supports our business objectives and, and everything. But that also extends to the virtual world where we're connecting every day and, and we get to intentionally create that rather than just like leaving it to the happenstance of, oh, I hope people brush shoulders at the water cooler or, right. or meet up and go for a beer after work. Um, that stuff's important and it has a place, but you do get to curate that in, in this environment. And um, I think there's something exciting about that that often gets overlooked. So companies can't always or shouldn't always, depending on what kind of company they are, get everyone to Tuscany. Like if you were an American company, you wouldn't be like, you know where we should have our offsite? Tuscany, right? <laughs> like, if I was your head of remote, I would say yes, but yeah. <laughs> I think that there are other places that you can figure out like where your offsite would be, but what tips do you have for making these sorts of in-person gatherings worthwhile? Yeah, I, I mean, there's two buckets of uh, suggestions. And one of them is like very logistical, like thinking through the way that you approach your your budgeting and choosing a location that that fits not just for your budget, but also mm -hmm. like, where's your team distributed and located? And how many, like, if I bring someone, if I have a predominantly uh, Asian-based team and I'm going to bring them all the way to the US, I'm going to need to bake in a couple days on either end of this retreat to make sure that they've got some time to show up as a decent version of themselves yep. for this this gathering and get back home. And so there's, there's all these costs associated. So thinking about the distribution, thinking about the right location, um, thinking about what you're going for, uh, in terms of like, what is this gathering about? Uh, like Priya Parker asks in the art of gathering, like, yeah. what, what is the purpose of this gathering? And we, we often just like overlook that step initially. We're just like, Oh, we have to do retreats. <laughs> uh, but there's a, there's some intentionality there. If you, you put some purpose behind it. And in our case, we focus a lot on, uh, connection. And so we wanted to be, for example, we migrated from 
city, major cities and metropolis, big downtown hotels to more like natural settings and places where we feel like we kind of like own an intimate space that's great mm. for our team. Thinking really intentionally about that is is one thing. And then I think there's this whole other bucket, which gets into like agenda creation and activities and things like that. And the number one recommendation that I make when I talk to people about this is do not pack that schedule with a bunch of activities that you don't, don't think that you need to use this four or five days together to conquer all your problems because you're not going to. Mm. <laughs> and I see so many people do that. They're they're, uh, they're optimizing for productivity when, in fact, oftentimes that's not the real best use case for this week. Right. And you're also going to end up with a bunch of employees who are exhausted, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like maybe have negative feelings about the retreat as a whole, which is not the feeling that you want people to leave a retreat holding with them. You want people to feel recharged, not exhausted. Like that battery should come back like rejuvenated, not depleted. You know, it reminds me too of how like the worst planning for trips, at least in my perspective, is when someone like plans all of your trip, like there's it's just go, 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 like always activities. And not even for people who are extroverts, like you still need some downtime built into that schedule. And some of that organic connection might happen during that downtime, right? Like might happen, oh, we're just hanging out. Like we're just sitting and sitting around at the breakfast table and reading. And we can do that because there is this like cushion built into how our time is scheduled over the course of the retreat. I could not agree with you more. We we even went so far as to like I got real nerdy on this and decided to like make it a formula. Like what yeah. is the what is the percentage basis of time we want to spend on planned activities versus work versus that like downtime where serendipitous conversation can take place and real connections can take place. Yeah. And we came up with this rule, the 20, 30, 50 rule. So we're 20% of our retreats are focused on work, 30% of planned activities. And that leaves 50% for, for R&R where people can connect, relax, recharge. I mean, I find that 50% is where the magic really happens. Like yeah. in my personal experience and from the team's feedback, like qualitatively and quantitatively, we've got a ton of data on this. That works. Before we get into our questions, I just want to say that this is the sort of thing that I can just picture a listener hearing and being like, must be nice, right? And I think sometimes we have this work perspective where we're like, Oh, if a company is doing something that's like actually really wonderful, that we're like that the first response is resentment instead of like that's aspirational. What if that was what work was like? And maybe we can try to work towards that. So that's just like a little bit of I understand why it's easy to be resentful. I used to like talk like that about my granddad retiring at like an early age, right, with a pension. And I was like, oh yeah, actually it would be nice to retire <laughs> with <grand>. a pension. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get that. It, I think there's always this caveat of like you're coming from a a place of entitlement or a place of, um, you know, like like you have to have empathy for the fact that not everyone has access to this. I think my goal in talking about this more is to is to share what remote work done well can yeah. really look like and and some of the intentionality that goes into it, because I've seen the worst forms of of this whole thing and it does it it's really bad like it it can be all the things that the stereotypes and the naysayers of remote work say that it can be but it can also be really good if if done well and so like for example in our case reinvesting all those a large majority at least of the savings that we have from office space into 
something like this um, is a reality. And I see more and more teams doing this. I, I, I think as we go more distributed, you'll see more teams investing in curating this really awesome space together in person and making it count. This is a great jumping off point for us to do our first question. So this first question is from Edith and our producer Melody is going to read it. I work in HR for a large company. I'm the person who responds when someone reports discrimination, bullying, harassment, and crappy things of all sorts. My teammates and I have noticed that in a remote work environment, the things people report are often more subtle than they had been in the before times. If a manager gives quick written feedback on someone's performance, they don't have the same in-person voice and body language cues to soften criticism or indicate how severe the issue actually is. We've been getting a lot of complaints about what amounts to tone in written communication, which is important. Not everyone communicates best by writing, though. So what does reliance on the written word and its subtleties mean for workers in terms of equity in hiring, psychological safety needs on the job, the much-talked-about atrophy of social muscles? If we're sending today's youth into this work world, what does that do to work? All right. So I love how this question starts with like very specific questions about what's going on in their company and then goes into like, how do we prepare the the youth to, to do this work? So what is your first reaction to this question? Oh, where do we, where do we begin? Right. Uh, there's, <laughs> there's so many things to, to tackle here, but I think it's a phenomenal question or, or set of questions. Yep. Um, because I think the atrophy of the, the social muscles can be real again, like alluding to what I, I said a moment ago, this is a problem, it's a challenge, but it can also be an opportunity to curate these interactions with your teammates and to build friendships and, and psychological safety and trust and all of these things. But I do think that there is a, a time and a place where we have to reinsert the synchronous conversation. And I think it's in instances like this where you, you find the epitome of that opportunity. Um, we can predominantly do work via the written form, but I think it's a great time to switch to synchronous activity when you're delivering difficult feedback, when you're providing feedback on a coworker, things like this. So there, there is an opportunity here if you if you choose to take it, but the company has to find the right balance between those. Mm -hmm. I will admit we've struggled with that a bit at Doist. Um, mm -hmm. We have asynchronous feedback loops, but we've also added in synchronous feedback loops. And I think those are, that can be very helpful because you're missing a ton of context. I mean, we, we deliver so much context via nonverbal cues. And some of that does need to be articulated in that setting. So how do you do that? Talk a little bit more about how you add in those synchronous feedback loops when you, especially since you're globally distributed, it's not just like, oh, well, some people are on the East Coast, some people are on the West Coast kind of thing. Yeah. So on average, about 85% of doisters, the my teammates report having around five hours or less of meetings per week, around 50% report having two hours or less. So I, I mentioned that to say how pretty much how uh, few hours per week people are invested in synchronous meetings. And a large majority of those meetings are utilized for situations like this. Yep. It's one-on-one -on -one conversations with your direct reports or your lead it's setting aside time to have the difficult conversations about, you know, this person is difficult for me to deal with in this instance, or I'm finding that this person is slacking off or not meeting the expectations. My workload is too much. Um, I'm not in a good place personally. Whatever those things are, we have specified time for each person to have synchronous conversation with their lead about that every single month. And so knowing that they have that space and encouraging it 
setting aside that time for this specific topic is very important to, to the way that we work. How do you deal with the fact that people, their communication style, written or verbal, because this is ultimately, this is a management question. This is about how you figure out how your reports need to be communicated to and, and vice versa. Like, I know that if I was talking to someone and they began to, like, their their slacks to me or whatever, seemed like it was they were bristling. They were edgy about something. I could pick that up. Mm-hmm. But even just that word bristly like what is that how do i know what are the things what are the specific things that that communicate that to me there's a lot of implicit meaning that i am picking up and some people are better or worse at that and sometimes it has to do with the way that their brain works right with like neurodivergence or sometimes it's just they don't have a lot of experience with it how do you think about that at doist there's something that that comes to mind here that i think is really important because you you touched on like the like neurodiversity, for example. We also, on a global t- globally distributed team, you have people from very different cultures who have yeah. grown up very different backgrounds. They approach problems in completely different ways. One of my favorite books is The Culture Map and talking about how we approach problem solving and feedback loops and things like that from, from different parts of the world. And it's something we suggest doisters read to, to have that in mind. We've got 100 people, 35 countries, every third person's from a different place. That leaves a lot of room for error. Um, but one baseline that we come back to, like, I guess, citing, dropping another book here, uh, is, uh, radical candor. And we encourage this culture of radical candor. Like you have to be comfortable confronting these challenges and providing feedback in a very radical candor way. Um, and so in order to do that, like if, if we're going to do that, we have to practice what we preach. Leaders have to lead with that provide such feedback in a public space and accept that this is one of the challenges you have to get comfortable with if you're going to work in this environment. That tone, being truthful about that tone and being ex- implicit about it is is super important when we don't have the visual cues. So I think that's been a huge help for us. Like We have intentionally adopted that several years back and it's improved the way we communicate, even if it's caused some harsh or challenge, somewhat challenging conversations, it's been a net positive in the end. So I think our advice for Edith, I'm going to say what I think our advice is, and then you can add to it. So I think that there needs to be a move towards doing more of that synchronous communication, and then also doing more to encourage more explicit communication. I also though, sorry, this is like backtracking. She seems to feel like Part of the problem is that when people do practice radical candor, when they are explicit, that people feel wounded mm-hmm. and feel like, uh, this is too harsh. And so how do we communicate to other workers that like, this isn't about you personally, right? This is just trying to be very clear about what we all expect and that sort of thing. Yeah, because when we, when we talk through it, if we're sitting in the same conference room, we can cushion it with gestures and maybe Mm -hmm. physical contact or we can um you know fluff it up a little bit but that feels very fluffy when you're writing it out to to give all this pretext and context and a bunch of emojis and make it sound all flushy oh and by the way you're kind of dropping the ball here yeah um (laughs) that is difficult to do so (laughs) i do get that and i think the advice that you just added to i think creating some intentional time where these conversations are supposed to take place and practicing a bit more radical candor and also just understanding like maybe saying to the team, like 
this is one of the challenges of the way that we work and we have to get yeah. better at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like posing it as something that we are collaborating on communication mm. instead of like just it's in the background that like, oh, this is hard and like no one's good <laughs> at it. But instead like that, you know, that's one of your things as a team that you're going to try to get better at. And if everyone's working on it or feels like everyone's working on it, it'll feel more like a collaborative process. Uh, that's a great point. Our next question is from Esther, who's wondering if her expected workload is reasonable. I work remotely at a late-stage tech startup. By late-stage, I mean the company was founded 10 years ago and has close to 1,000 employees. I was originally really excited to join the company because it seemed like they had remote work all figured out. They had been remote-friendly since before the pandemic. There is a genuinely welcoming culture where people will schedule time with you just to build rapport. And they held quarterly offsites to spend time in person with other people on the team. But those offsites have now been canceled for budget reasons, and I've found that the company culture is more one of constant overwork. Just today, we were told that the expectation is that we're working an average of 50 hours a week, and that that's what we signed up for when we joined a, quote, scaling startup. I find this really frustrating. I don't think there's a strong correlation between my hours worked and my output. I actually do better work when I have time to rest and recover. But the expectation makes me feel like I'm supposed to be glued to my desk, and I don't feel like I'm reaping any of the potential benefits of remote work. Do you have any tips for pushing back on an organization with unrealistic expectations around working remotely? Ugh. This this organization feels like it's operating in a defensive crouch right now, and I think that's leading to a lot of problems. But let's take this piece by piece. So first, how do you feel about them canceling the offsites? Well, this might surprise you, uh, Anne, but I'm very much so against that. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that <laughs> I think it's one of those budget items. You know, it's funny. I, I, I'll give talk about Duist for a second. We're like many organizations. We're feeling the, the crunch of the economy. We're on a hiring freeze. We made some cuts in multiple departments in terms of budgetary, not, not people, but in terms of budget. At the same time, we increase our offsite budget by 10%. Wow. So what that speaks to is our doubling down and on the fact that if this is the future of work that we want to build, then really well-curated time together in person has to be a core part of it. Yeah. It's like saying we got to save money so we're going to stop paying for the electricity. Like you you just can't do that. You, you have to create some sort of space. Now, I get the realities that cuts have to happen somewhere. And, you know, this may not work for all companies, but I would challenge the leaders of this company, not the person writing the question to, to rethink that aspect and, and decide, was this an extra for you? Were you not getting the return on investment? If not, why? And what could you change to maybe make sure that it's a net positive, not, a, not, not an expense, but an asset? Right. I think part of the problem is that the benefits of an offsite are not easily quantifiable. Right. Yeah. The benefits of an offsite are improved culture, right? <laughs> improved connection. You can't be like, oh, because of this offsite, this is all of the things that I was able to do better at my job. Like it's just it's it's very difficult that way. But oftentimes I think in companies that are feeling stress, they cut those things. Mm -hmm. They see them as like fat instead of 
essential structure to the well-being of the company. And, you know, maybe I think like so much of the discontent that Esther is voicing here, some of it has to do with this work expectation, which we can talk about next. But like a lot of it is like she just feels shitty about the company. And that's in part because they're not having good connections with one another. Well, yeah, this is the, I mean, this is the slippery slope that they're on. They're, they're creating a, a culture of mercenaries that don't care about working, t- that aren't going to have the chance to care about working together. And they're seeing it as an industrial revolution, clock in for my 50 hours and clock out. I, it go, to, the, to her end point, she's talking a lot about basically being present. You have to be present yeah. for 50 hours. They've <laughs> removed the focus on output and instead are focusing on the presenteeism and the inputs. Uh, which is a recipe for disaster, especially combined when you're removing the aspect where people were going to actually build social bonds and connections. So you're you're stripping away all the power that remote work could have given you, and uh, and leaving these people with a with a pretty rough situation. <laughs> so what do you think is happening at a company, especially one like this that seems to shift? Like they were remote before the pandemic; they have experience with this, and they're shifting into this presenteeism. What do you think's happening? It's a great question. I would I would love the opportunity to dig deeper into this because I'm kind yeah. of fascinated by the the regression. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people feeling this pain in some way or another, and I think leaders that have been become accustomed to leading in a certain way tried to adapt to a new way of working. Things got tight, you know. It wasn't all rainbows and butterflies, and they start reverting to old old ways of working. Yeah. And in some cases, they they may have never even really given this type of work a full look. They might not have given it a real fighting chance by implementing the right practices or tools or workflows or or whatever. So, I mean, I would challenge those leaders to to refocus on the things that matter, um, refocus on those outputs and deliverables. And I would perhaps, you know, I, I don't know what advice to give to give her exactly in this because. Um, I see the challenge she's up against, and I, and I think it's a, a big one. But I would start by documenting the challenges that she's mentioned here and how she feels like it's impacting her work in a negative way, and yeah. then showcase how it could be changed. I think it's taking one little bite out of the elephant, you know, it's with her direct, the person that she reports to directly, but maybe chipping away at it that way could be, could be helpful because I have no doubt she's, she's correct. Like, she needs that time to rest and recoup. And she probably is at her best when she's not glued to her device, having to reply immediately and has time to go into deep work mode. So I, she could probably prove it and showcase how they're actually doing themselves a disservice by adopting these older ways of working. You know, depending on how much power or seniority she has in this organization, I kind of feel like she's not that senior. I think that one thing she could do for herself, for advocacy, if it doesn't feel like a conversation with her manager about why this is bullshit is necessarily going to do anything, is communicate, I'm going to do some deep work, or like, I'm going to try to concentrate or heads down or whatever like phrase you want to use on a project. If someone really needs me in the next two or three hours, you can text me. Otherwise, this is what I'm doing. So broadcasting, I am working, but then also creating a space where she could also not work the entire time. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a laziness way. I mean that in a, if she gets her work done in concentration in an hour and a half and then has an hour and a half that she doesn't need to be working, but she has 
telegraphed that three hours as work time, that might be effective. Yeah, absolutely. Do do you get the impression that she's in a situation where she has to reply, like she's expected to reply immediately to to prove that mm. she's available? I'm, I'm I mean, kind of this assuming is like, this. Yeah, like tech companies, this is the norm, right? Is that like yeah. you're that's that's how they know that you're working? is by your availability, like your replyability. <laughs> and st- it's not like she has to get on and like punch a time card or something like that because she's a salaried employee, it seems. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, but she's present by responding for being the first one to respond or react or, or show up. And, yep. uh, and that's, she's getting credit just for, for being there. I mean, when you, when you really think about this, like from the leader's standpoint, it it actually makes like little to no sense to <laughs> to judge any sort of productivity or output yes. on this yes. basis. It reminds me when I worked at BuzzFeed, there would oftentimes be these conversations about like, oh, people are spending too much time chatting in Slack, like chatting about like, you know, whatever worthless shit in Slack. But also you are expected to be very present on Slack in order to evidence that you are working. So what do you want to see? Like, of course, we're getting pulled into this messaging app that we're supposed to be like vigilant about checking. Yes, it happens that we then start chatting about these other things. And so it's just at cross purposes. And I think using that, I'm here. Here's what I'm working on. Here's how you can reach me if you really, really need me. Like that will be a way to to show that she is working without necessarily having to have that sort of alertness to others. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's a great solution. And you're providing the outlet in case something truly is urgent. Yeah. And and especially if, how cool is it if you, uh, you know, if you're used to working in that environment where you're getting distracted every five minutes with some ping. So writing an article, if you're, a, you know, if you're a writer, and uh, that normally takes you five hours. And uh, but in, in this case, you could go into deep work mode, say, hey, I'm checking out for four hours to work on this. But you can write it in an hour or two. And then you yeah. have that relaxing time. And yeah. you, again, like circling back to the to the what's produced in that. And that is that's what's really important. All right. So that's our advice is maybe fake a little bit just just, <laughs> just a little bit of subterfuge find some time um. for yourself i wonder actually can i add one more thing real yeah, quick yeah. that just popped in yeah. my head coming back to like the social connections and I, I gather that's a huge pain point for her and i wonder if there's an opportunity to to step up and lead from behind a little bit if we're, mm. if we're assuming that she's not in a leadership position but offer to curate a, a a social calendar of some sort virtual activities together just start explaining to the leadership team how you're you're feeling some pain in this point and you'd like to help solve it for the for the team it could be a way to advance herself she's obviously passionate about this um yeah. and it could help solve her pain and also some of her her teammates Yeah, that's great additional advice to the subterfuge advice that I gave. (laughs) Our next question is about when work from anywhere goes a little too far. This is from Leah and our colleague Julia is going to read it. I am a government analyst in an agency that is still in a mostly remote work posture. A side effect of remote work is that my coworkers increasingly take meetings or perform work tasks away from their workstations. 
For example, my boss will take a call when on a walk, my subordinates will join a call while driving to the hardware store, or people will take full-on vacations while trying to work at the same time. I prefer that my coworkers be able to access the meeting agenda and any documents my team has prepared for discussion and to not be distracted while driving or walking or on vacation. I sense that we aren't supposed to voice concerns about telework until the next phase of work rules are hammered out. I think I am bothered by this because it seems that in a time where we can work from anywhere, people feel like they should be working from everywhere. The agency provides generous leave time and allows flexible schedules. So I wish that people would put personal errands on their calendars and use leave time or work an extra hour in the day rather than trying to multitask. I am a mom with two kids. Believe me, I totally understand the need for flexibility, but work is work. Is there an effective way to say, please reschedule this meeting if you can't be at your workstation or if someone calls in from the car to say, let's reschedule this meeting so I can have your full attention? Is there such a thing as full attention anymore? So much going on here. I appreciate that Leah is voicing this frustration because I think this is a real thing. I think that there is sometimes where um, more attention is is necessary and people aren't able to give their full attention. At the same time, I don't always think that people need to have their full attention on a meeting if they're calling in. But I'm so curious to hear what you think here. Yeah, I actually agree with a lot of what she's saying. Um, yeah, and I and I I, th- I agree with you as well that I think it's a a real thing. It's a it's it's a problem. Now, yeah. I want to do a little caveat. I'm a huge fan of a walking meeting. Um, yeah, I probably do one per day. Uh, I don't care if someone shows up and their backgrounds and obviously not their office, um, but I do care that if we're going to sync up for a meeting, we better damn well use that time very well. And yeah. if you're distracted and you're not and you're multitasking and there's background noise or you're you're not able to focus on what we're talking about, that's a huge problem for me. And so I, my my initial thoughts on this is obviously none of this is documented at the company. There's no yeah. working agreement. There's no guidelines that and if there are, they're just totally being not followed. But my my first piece of advice is is starting with that, like a distributed company should have some form of working agreement some sort of guidelines around how meetings take place. And I think she's she's spot on with wanting to to have that articulated to the team. I think that some of these problems could be solved by having core hours, by having two or three hours a day where your attention should not be diluted in whatever way. And then, because if it is a flexible work schedule and she seems to appreciate, like flexibility is fantastic. Like we need to have this ability for to have people go on errands when they need and want to pick up their kids when they need and want. But we also need this time where we are actually focused on one another. And I think some of our bad habits really developed over meeting culture mm-hmm. where everything is like, okay, will you be on this call? Will you also be on this call? And when you get on a call and you realize like, all they want is for you to say like, I'm here. And then maybe chime in with one piece of information at like minute 40 in the meeting. Of course, you're going to be like, yeah, I can go to the hardware store while I take this call. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. So, so this behavior, I, and I don't know if this is the case, but it's she's, she's a government contractor. Like, I think this is probably the case. I think that this is a symptom of overmeeting culture. So how do you simultaneously try to decrease the number of meetings and at the same time emphasize if we're having a meeting, we need to be there with one another. 
I, you, you nailed it. Uh, that's exactly right. That's <laughs> the, pr- the problem is actually, it, it's sort of like inverted. We started like curing the symptom, but there's this actual, the, the root of the problem is that they lean way too much on meetings. People see them as just another tidbit of their day. Yep. Um, they're working eight or nine hours and they're spending a large chunk of them in meetings. So they take them for granted and they don't feel like they have to, to show up. And this is the, this is the epitome of the problem with, with the over meeting culture. So pushing for moving away from that would obviously be an ideal situation, setting, encouraging some setting of guidelines and expectations that uh, are obviously like accepted by the company and expected would be another one. Yeah. I, you know, depending on how senior she is, either she can maybe have this conversation with her manager about how we can figure out how to do this better with the team. Or if she's a manager, that's something that she can spearhead with leadership and also with her team. But I think that simultaneous move, because I think it would sound shitty if you're like, if we have a meeting, you need to be paying attention, right? But if you're like, we're going to try to have fewer meetings and really have essential meetings and like be much more mindful about who is invited to a meeting. And then as we do that, we're also going to try to emphasize that like we want you to be present and at your workstation when you're having that meeting. Does that seem like it's a good compromise? seems very logical to me. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just, I, uh, you know, I, I think people in positions of non-leadership are often afraid to like speak up. But I think often people in positions of leadership are really excited to see someone elevate themselves and, and take a stand or take the initiative to make a better mousetrap. And yeah. this is an opportunity again, like kind of with same with the previous question, like go to your the person that you're reporting to with a written out suggestion. Like, this is what I would want. And I've shared this with a few teammates and this is what we would want. And we think we'll be better for this. Like you're solving problems for, for your leader who's charged with getting the most out of your team. So again, there's like another opportunity baked into this challenge. Okay. Our last question. This is a throwback to one that we addressed in one of our earliest episodes with Adrian Hahn. So I'm wondering what tips you have for fun, not cheesy, not gimmicky, team bonding activities for remote staff when you're not in person. Oh, virtual trust falls and Zoom happy hours all day. <laughs> I mean, is there anything better? That's what we're all craving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I love, I just love a Zoom happy hour. It's exactly oh, yeah. what I want to do at the end of Everybody, the day. Everybody, <laughs> 5.30 on Friday, let's get on the Zoom happy hour. Uh, oh, wait, it's 8.30 a.m. your time? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Cool, um, cool. <laughs> uh, so I love this. It's it's funny. Like my job as head of remote seems like it would be very focused on like making us very like much more asynchronous, much more, um, you know, a lot of tools and work sh- workflows and stuff. I actually spend like probably forty percent or so of my time on the social capital aspect and uh, and talking about thinking through like how do we how do we make this thing work by connecting more as a team. And one of the things we did early on, aside from like revamping our approach to retreats and offsites, um, was building out a, a pretty robust social calendar that involves mm. a bunch of activities that are staggered throughout the month, every month. And they cater to different types of people. I put them into three buckets. There's there's synchronous and in-person, which is like mm. predominantly our retreats and offsites and some mentorship trips and stuff like that. There's asynchronous and virtual and synchronous and virtual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in each of those cases, we have a handful of activities that are happening at any given time. The 
common denominator amongst all of those, all three of those buckets is that everything is completely optional by default. There's no pressure to join. Um, there's no expectation that you will join. And, and we try to stagger time zones so that people around the world can opt in if they want to. We also ask that leadership see this as part of the workday, not yeah. ex extra stuff on top of the workday. Yeah, so yeah. those are a few core principles. I don't know if those, it sounds like that jives with your viewpoint, but. Yeah, um, but, but give me a good example. Give me a fun yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So for example, we have, uh, an, like we have this thing we call Doist Talks, which is one of my favorites. These yeah. are like TED Talk style presentations that happen once a month. Someone from the team presents something that they're working on, could be a side project, it could be something they did at work, anything so somewhat work related. It appeals to the more technically minded person who's like, yeah. I'm not going to show up to the better version of the Zoom happy hour. I don't need that in my life, but like I could actually learn something from this or I'm, I'm inspired by this. And people build real connections around that, like amazing yeah. conversations take place. Yeah. So we have a series of those kind of things. Um, oddly, one of the most popular and well attended is something we call casual hangouts, which is where you opt in and then you're, you, we create uh, random groups of three people. We've mm -hmm. determined three is the optimal number um, through a random bunch of trial and error. And we match you up with three people and then you have a one hour slot uh, sometime that month that you all agree on works for you just to hop on a call and chit chat. And it's like so easy. It's free. It costs like nothing to create. Um, we've automated most of the process and yeah. it's like, and it's, and it's just so simple. Um, and, and then, so we've got a, a series of these, like pretty much every week, or at least every two weeks, you could opt into an hour or so of, of activity like that. On the asynchronous side, we've got a series of games that are being played at any given time from two truths and a lie, where you record a video and you tell two truths and a lie and then share it with the whole team and people vote on which one they think is the lie. Um, uh, see, to, and uh, the voting part makes it into something that feels more collective. Uh, Totally. That's so yeah, that's such a great yeah. idea. People people get in people really get into it and they share why they thought this one. Oh, I think he's lying about this one because of I know this about that person and Yeah, yeah. Um none of this is rocket science. It's just about putting a little bit of intention into creating it. We've got all these prompts that pop up like uh an automated uh prompt that says like, "Hey, what did you guys do this weekend? Share some pictures and explanation or hey what what books are you reading right now it's kind of like a book club thing what do you recommend yeah. um just little things like this celebrating birthdays celebrating victories uh so creating the space is the important thing the activities i feel like are are like secondary to that yeah. but um but yeah i could go on like i actually wrote an article that highlighted every single activity that we do that could go into way more detail than i can here yeah but, yeah um but What's be happy to share that it's uh how to build connection in an async environment i think Amazing. is the title yeah, yeah something like that yeah this has been fantastic i feel like i could talk about this stuff all day where can people find more from you on the internet if they want to yeah uh well thank you i am uh, a big fan and it was awesome to to be invited on so this was a lot of fun for me too i also feel like i could continue to nerd out on this for for quite a while but <laughs> Um, in the meantime, if people want to connect with me, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, sharing uh, a lot about what we're doing, building in public there. So, so finding me there is is probably most useful. Our Doist blog and Todoist Inspiration Hub has a lot of my articles and articles from my colleagues who are writing about the future of work and 
um, how to make distributed teamwork work. So doist.com or todoist.com are, are two great places to go as well. And then I'm at DC Warrington on most social media platforms. I really, really like the blog. So I strongly recommend people who are looking for more thoughts around this entire, like thinking around async, thinking about remote to, to check it out. They're very digestible, but substantive posts. So highly recommend. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Before we go, a couple more notes for you. There's a high stakes November coming up and it might not be the November you're thinking of. The media hype has turned to 2024, but that won't stop 2023 elections from having massive implications for abortion access, voting rights, and more. From the Virginia legislative elections to the Ohio reproductive rights ballots measure, we've got work to do in the next few weeks. Visit votesaveamerica.com slash years to learn more and find out how you can get involved. And second, at Crooked, we love books. They teach us new things, expand our horizons, piss off uptight conservatives who never got to stay for story time at the library. That's why we created our very own storefront on bookshop.org, where you can find books published by Crooked's imprint, a selection of favorites from the Crooked staff, and lots more. You can even shop my book, Out of Office, The Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home. Look for it in the Crooked Authors section. Bookshop.org directly supports local booksellers, so you won't be personally funding Jeff Bezos's yacht renovations. That's always a plus. Head to crooked.com slash bookstore to find your next read. Thanks for listening to Work Appropriate. If you liked this episode, you should definitely check out a couple from our archives. Remote Work Done Right with Marissa Goldberg and Onboard Me with Adrian Hahn. You can follow me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson, and you can sign up for my newsletter, Culture Study, at annhelen.substack.com. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producer is Kendra James. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Alison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz, and special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismar. Oh,